So just before we start, I wanted to remind you, if you've not already done so, to please subscribe, rate and comment on whichever app you're using. It really helps to get the podcast listened to by more people. Hi Dad. Hi Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe my head. The thing is though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. So uh, we have a very special guest today. We have Dr. Kalunthi. Uh, she was raised as a Jehovah's Witness and is now an academic coach and mentor working with postgraduate students. Uh, She has a PhD with studies focusing on late antiquity and early Christianity. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, and it's lovely to be here. Excellent, good. Uh, Maybe you could start by giving us a little bit of background about you uh, and telling us a little bit about your upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, My upbringing was very unusual. Uh, My parents got baptized in 77 so I didn't know anything other than being a witness but the first sort of six seven years of them being witnesses they they were probably what you would call weak okay um my my father had no intention of ever becoming an elder he would much rather play football on a Saturday (laughs) um all their friends were not witnesses we would go on holiday every year with another family who weren't witnesses um but this actually meant I was quite isolated in the congregation because we were weak. We were on the outskirts. Yeah. Uh, And then when I got to my early teens, I decided in the parlance of the witnesses to make the truth my own. So I I got into my study and I became very spiritual for about 10 years, Uh, left school at 16 to pioneer and and all of that. I didn't actually get as far as pioneering because by that point, I had developed an eating disorder and um, I basically, when I was super spiritual, I think it was just, I was trying to do what I assumed was the right thing, even though it didn't suit me in any way, shape or form. Um, And then in my early twenties, I did the the terrible crime of marrying someone who was not a witness. Right. So I was then what's termed marked. Ah, oh, so you had the talk. I had the talk. I sat through the talk because, again, I thought it was the right thing to do. So so if anybody doesn't know what marking is, uh, one of the elders will give a talk about a situation in the hall, in the Kingdom Hall, without mentioning names. But everybody knows who it is about. And then the, the, the congregation is told not to socialize with that person outside of the Kingdom Hall. So it's kind of like a soft shunning. Mm. And I realized that it did not affect my life in any way, shape or form, because no one associated with me anyway, despite the fact that I had been desperately trying to do the right thing. And I think that was my first moment of starting to go, hang on a minute. 
but it took me then a very long time to actually wake up. So um, I married a, a chap because I had completely um, put my sexuality uh, in a jar and put it away very far. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a workaholic. And I don't say that in any pejorative way because it suited us both um, that he yeah. was always working. Being on my own, I got bored and decided to do the A-levels that I'd never done as a teenager. Okay. And from there, um, was encouraged to go to university. So I did my BA, my MA, my PhD, uh, all back to back. I was funded for the MA and PhD, and I was also teaching by the time I was doing my MA as well. Wow. Um, and that still didn't wake me up entirely. But by the end of that, I'd come to terms with my sexuality and I'd started to move away mentally from the witnesses. Right. It took me another three or four years to actually leave. Um, and to do wow. that, I needed to get into sport, which was completely different. But sport was my door out. Oh, right. Okay. So, um, uh, well, tell us about that. That sounds really interesting. How did, um, we'll come back to your academic stuff because I'm fascinated by that. But um, tell us about how sport helped you uh, exit. Uh, so I lived in uh, an area where there really wasn't a lot of money or infrastructure. So mm. if you wanted to do anything, you had to do it yourself. And basically everybody was either in a band or played sport. Okay. That, that, that were your options. So I got into triathlon. And I started uh, with little triathlons and found a wonderful community of people who were so supportive and so helpful. It's one of the nice things about this, this kind of thing. They want you to be as good as you can be, even if you're rubbish. So, you know, the idea about triathlon is why be good at one sport when you can be crap at three? <laughs> and that was very much our attitude. You know, we're just trying. We're, we're completers, not competers. Um, and I moved uh, over the course of three years from doing mini triathlons where you do a 500 meter swim, you do a 10K bike ride and you do a 5K run. Mm-hmm. to an Ironman. Wow. wow. And an Ironman is 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a full marathon. <laughs> that takes a lot of training. <laughs> my mm. goodness. And that was my door out. I was training 15 hours a week to do right. that. So I didn't have time to think about the witnesses. Um, I yeah. do remember the time that I actually decided not to, not to go anymore. Was I was sitting in my parents' house. By that point, my marriage had, had ended. And I was, I was living back with my parents and my mother said, we'd like you to come to the hall. We know that you're not going very much at the moment. And mm. I just turned around and said, no. Well, that was the moment. That was, that was the moment. Um, I, but it had, always, been, it had been years leading up to it. Right. I always ask people that, um, you know, and it, and it differs. Some people can pinpoint a moment like that and other people can't. It's just a, like a gradual process. But obviously... You went through that gradual pro- process, but then a realization, I guess, hit you at that point. This is this is it. Mm. So, um, when you went through your education, um, were you still married during all of that period? Yes. Yeah. So, and you were still a witness during all yep. that period. Still a witness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I and I taught the most outrageous things. I remember at one point I was teaching this medieval Welsh poem, which is about the female genitalia. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I, I had absolutely no problem doing that as a witness because it was, you know, history. Sure. Yeah. So looking at your, um, the, the subjects that you did in these various different degrees, they, they all are around gender, mm. um, 
expressions of or understanding virginity things like that um is that does that have something to do with with your experience you're having or is that just coincidence that's just something that you're interested in uh the answer to that is both okay um it it something that i was interested in um virginity as a religious concept is so complex um it can be thought of even as a as a type of sexuality. You know, I will mm. I will devote my sexuality to Jesus and become a bride of Christ. That that kind of thing. Um, but as I was also coming to terms with my own sexuality and just opening the door to thinking about it, mm. it was hugely important for that. So I think the two sort of fed off each other. Mm. Uh, I started my PhD looking specifically at saints' lives, um, and from there narrowed it down to the element of virginity um so you focused on uh i mean we, we're quite happy to get into the weeds on um on this show so i'm fascinated by uh by the study that you're doing aldames de virginitate aldames de virginitate thank you so uh, which means on virginity okay so that that seems really interesting. That so this is a, a man, a monk, was it? Um, no, uh, he was he was a, a bishop. Um, a so bishop. The, the 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 general idea is um, when the Anglo Saxons settled in England, um, they were pagan, and then over several generations they became Christian. And then there's often the idea that at, at the start of that period, women had a lot more freedom and power. Okay. And then by the time the Normans come, women are, are far more um, restricted. And he wrote that in 607, so it's very early in this period. And already he was trying to control women because the essential message of that, using the early Christian fathers like Jerome and Augustine and Ambrose, is to say, your virginity belongs to me because I am the representative of God and therefore I can tell you what to do. Right. which ignores the fact that most of the women that he was writing to were not virgins. They were actually mothers who, had, uh, who, who were either widows or had left their husbands in order to go into the church right. and were very powerful abbesses running lands, running businesses. Uh, every single monastery that we know about in the Anglo-Saxon period is what's termed a double monastery which means it is nuns and monks together. So the abbess would actually be over the monks as well. Oh, wow. And he was trying to control that and, and sort of go, well, you know, as a man, obviously I'm the one that needs to tell you what to do. That's interesting. So uh, are we saying then that this is a, um, this, this is the, the, the beginning of a much more patriarchal kind of church from which we have the, the values and ideas that we, we sort of experience today or? It was always patriarchal. Okay. Uh, I mean, he, he's using exactly the same arguments that were being used 300 years earlier by Jerome, mm. um, which is, you know, women just can't be trusted. Yeah. They'll tempt you as soon as they look at you, and therefore we need to control them because if we give them any freedom, society will collapse. And how did they justify that stance? Was that um, obviously Jehovah's Witnesses based their patriarchal um, doctrines on on certain scriptures that they pick out of the Bible. How did these people justify that? Uh, the that same stance? sort of way. I mean, yeah. Eve is, is obviously a wonderful example <laughs> that you can, you can just throw in. Mm. Um, and then you have 
Mary as the exemplar of the perfect woman who is yeah. both virgin and mother and silent. Mm. Um, mm. You know that that's that's essentially what they want from 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 women. Um, yeah. But then you have that coming up against the women that they actually had to deal with, who who were very different. Yeah, from a different so. tradition. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so, but uh, the patriarch has always been there. I think in Christianity. Interesting. When you were on your on your way to leaving, I know it's always a long. I don't, a lot of people have said it's always a long process. I don't think we spoke to anyone and they've said, oh, it just happened immediately. Mm. Um, mm. So I suppose, do you remember sort of um, what issues you were grappling with at the time as to what started making you 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 drift from it? Exhaustion. It wasn't so much a doctrinal thing because I, I looking back, I realised that a lot of the doctrine I had already unconsciously stopped believing and I was just working on the assumption of well it has to be the best religion because I've been told it's the best religion so even if they're wrong about this that or the other it still has to be the right one but the exhaustion of trying to do the right thing always when my heart wasn't in it and I was I was yeah I didn't believe it I think was the point that that stopped me um in the end I just couldn't go on anymore yeah, I think that is one thing that a lot of people have in common. It, it is, it is tiring, and they take it takes up so much, so so much time. Um, yeah, your I mean, uh, your brain space. <laughs> yeah, back then it was you know the three meetings a week and all the studying. Um, I know in my in my teens when my family were were, were doing more as witnesses, our Friday nights was the Watchtower and the Bible reading together. Um, yeah. as a study with another family I mean that would be two or three hours it was a slog as well with um with leaving was with your uh, sexuality was there a time mm. was um, that a big player in as well as wanting to leave and um or was that just kind of just another thing on top of the exhaustion um that's a really interesting question because I think what I had done was just repressed it so much that it was, be- if you'd probably asked me what I was, I would have probably said asexual because it would just like, it, it had become a non-entity. And then as I'd sort of got to understand, oh, oh, hang on a minute, that makes sense now. Um, I I was still determined to do the right thing. I was still married. Um, I went to the elders and said, I think I'm gay. And the elders went, oh, Okay would you like a shepherding call? And they genuinely gave me a lovely, encouraging shepherding call. I mean, it was, it was just not what you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just got to the point where I realized the exhaustion was too much. And it was only after I left. And I also left my husband at the same time because I realized that was as much a factor in my exhaustion, you know, trying to be this wife that I just wasn't. Mm. Um, that I, that I, thought to myself okay well maybe I should do gay as well as be gay mm. but I'd left by that point yeah yeah because I think um yeah with the witnesses it's kind of like a yeah there's um a thing of as long as you're not doing the thing mm-hmm. um you know that sort of not not in the way that it's like oh that's okay but like there's a there's a strange 
relationship with the witnesses and, and that side of things, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredibly performative. It's all about what you do or don't mm. do. Mm. Yeah. I, I think um, go, uh, casting my mind back to my, um, my youth and my adolescence, I think, um, I think sexuality is, is difficult for everyone um because obviously you're so restricted in terms of you you can only even go out with somebody who with whom you have a a, a thought to marry you know so straight away you're you can't just go out with somebody because you're interested in getting to know them um or having a bit of casual dating and certainly no no sexual experiences without being married mm, um yeah. Everything is so high, um, high stakes, isn't it? You know, the, the the very the very first time you go out with somebody, it's you're aware that this could be, very well could be the person you're you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with, and um, eternity, and indeed eternity, yeah, forever in in the paradise. And I have um, to say that was another thing that that allowed me to disengage. I hmm. never wanted to live forever swapping peppers and patting pandas it just had no appeal to me whatsoever I wanted it for other people because I didn't want other people to suffer yeah and and I remember as a as a as a child my prayers at night to Jehovah would always be a long list of everybody I knew that they wouldn't die at Armageddon but I was quite happy if I died at Armageddon because I didn't want it you didn't want to live forever yeah, it's interesting. We we covered that on a on a previous podcast, thinking about um, what actually living forever mm. in a paradise, uh, worshiping God, would be like, and it it does sound pretty hideous, really, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. So I, t- I always I always used to say that my idea of paradise was sushi bars and avant garde theatre and a penthouse, and mm. th- that's never portrayed in the in the They're literature. Never in those so. pictures. No. <laughs> No, there's no night at the fringe. No. <laughs> exactly. No, I want right. the vaults in my paradise. <laughs> it's true. Mm. So, um, okay. So, you're if we go back to this period where you're uh, you're kind of mo- moving away from the organisation, um, you've you, you've gradually dropped. So, f- correct me if I'm wrong with this uh, this summary. Um, mm. You've gradually dropped any of these problematic doctrines and beliefs and so on. And so I remember when I was, was uh, losing my faith in the religion, I was conscious of the gradual erosion of my faith. I, I describe it like one of those bags that have got lots of holes in it. You know, eventually there's too many holes. You can't hold anything in it anymore. Um, so I don't know whether that relates to, to your thinking or whether you were able to just say well do you know what I'll just leave that for the moment and I'll leave that bit I'm not worried about that bit I'm not worried about this bit at what point does it does it just become so holy in in the true sense of the word um that you can't you can't hold anything in it anymore does that make sense yeah um I like that analogy um good illustration Get a good <laughs> thank you um, <laughs> Gee. Yeah, um, I think I think with me, I, I was the queen of compartmentalization. So, okay. like in my academic work, I- it was critical thinking. I was looking at these texts and and all of that, and I never 
was able to turn that on the literature from the organization because oh. I think I'd had such a strong upbringing of they would never lie to you. So everything they tell you is true. So you never need to question it. Um, so, so when that started to happen and I was like, well, hang on a minute, a worldwide flood four and a half thousand years ago, yeah. it's not really any evidence for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think those holes sort of came in, but the exhaustion was the thing that, that, that broke it. I like, my, I would right. say that my bag just split from the exhaustion rather than the holes actually mm. creating it. Um, mm. because I did default to, okay, well maybe the, they're wrong on the flood, but mm. I don't want people to suffer. So the paradise must be true. Right. Okay. Mm. That's really interesting how you can, you can compartmentalize your, your thinking in, in such a way. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it was like to leave and how that started to feel because you're, you're exhausted as a witness. You've got all these, um, these components, compartments that you're having to create in your thinking you're really really busy doing everything you think you need to do and then through your sport and and so on you you're able to leave um you, you're able to end your marriage what's that like what does that feel like at this point um uh put it like this it's not a time in my life i would ever want to go back to Oh, really? Um, I ended up in therapy. I, I, as I was finishing my PhD, I had a complete nervous breakdown, which was just the, you know, the start of this, I am too exhausted to do anything. Um, mm. And I had to take some time out. And I bounced around the mental health services for about five years on and off, which I don't recommend to anyone. Mm. Um, the NHS is so underfunded. All I ever saw was locums who just said, well, someone will see you next month or someone mm. will see you in six months time or yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but I was able to get some therapy or well, some counseling rather than therapy with my doctor's counselor. And I yeah. think that probably was what got me through. He was an amazing guy. Um, I'm not uh, a fan of things that don't have a scientific background the kind of woo uh new agey stuff i it just doesn't yeah. suit me I'm, I'm if other people no. want to do it that's fine but it doesn't suit me sure and he he mm. was a youngian who was fully committed to that kind of stuff and we challenged each other but he realized very quickly mm. um that the way to work with me was not to do with my emotions because um i basically lived in my head i'd completely disconnected from my body um, was to give me something to read academically and then discuss it and how it might relate to my experiences Okay. And that was how, you know, how he sort of negotiated it. So um, on the NHS, you're supposed to have six counselling sessions with a, uh, you know, a GP counsellor. He mm. got me straight through onto another six and he got me 12. So I had 12 sessions over yeah. so many months. And it really helped me unpick why I was so miserable and how I needed to move forward. And I think that was possibly what saved my life because I was wow. suicidal at the time. That, that was why I went to the GP because I was suicidal. Yeah. Wow. Mm. So you, you, you get through that part of, of the transition, can I call it? Um, mm. And you come to the other side of that. Are you able to tell us a little bit about 
how you start to build your life or rebuild your life? I was lucky, I think, in that most of my life was online um, because I lived in the back of beyond <clears throat> and uh, just didn't have many people, apart from the sport where, where I was running with different groups, I, I just didn't have people in my life that I shared interests with. So I lived a lot of my life online and I'd met some really fantastic people online. They, they used to be a BBC forum called Mustardland, okay. which was for fans of the Archers. <laughs> and I met genuinely some of my best friends on this forum um, that wow. I, I still know 10 years later. Wow. Um, and I had that to fall back on. I also had a friend who had got disfellowshipped um, as I was coming up to leaving and we stayed in touch. And she said to me, you can't stay in this area because there is nothing for you here. There are no jobs. There's no life. You have to move. So I'm going to put a dating profile up for you if you don't do it yourself. <laughs> and having known her for some years, that terrified me. <laughs> so I put up a dating profile, but it wasn't, it wasn't actually dating. It was, it was specifically looking for friends. Okay. And, uh, and in doing that, I met someone um, who, long story short, was able to say, well, I have a spare room here if you want to come and see what it's like to live in a city, um, I need the rent. You can pay me some rent. And, you know, w w yep. if we say three months and see how you go. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we actually, I mean, we, we became very good friends over the phone and online before mm -hmm. I actually moved. But when I did move, um, it was um, an instant connection. So that allowed me to move forward. So it, that was actually okay. a really, really easy step. I had my online community, which wasn't big, but it was very supportive because yeah. they'd known me for quite a while. And then mm -hmm. I had this person who allowed me to just step away. Brilliant. What about your, um, your, your career, your secular career during this, this time? So we haven't really talked about that. So you, you obviously, um, I guess you needed to make a living. Um, so yeah. what did you do? My secular career was largely non-existent at the start of that um, mm. because I was still married when I finished my PhD and my husband uh, was, uh, like I said, he was a workaholic, but he absolutely had no intention of ever moving and he lived in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't mm -hmm. continue with an academic career because I just couldn't mm. live there and commute ridiculous places or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So... I stepped back from that um, and I just did little jobs and I did some freelancing and stuff like that to try and make a living. And then when I moved, um, I moved to Sheffield, um, I was able to do freelancing there and that's where I started working with students um, and it sort of developed from there. Um, but it was, okay. uh, it was a difficult couple of years financially. Yeah. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about what you do now? Is that, is that something you can... Uh, yeah, so um, I mainly work with uh, postgraduate students who are second language English, um, and I help them okay. with research skills, um, uh, English, because you have to be at a certain level of English to be accepted onto a PhD program, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can understand the academic jargon of Absolutely. your field in English, you know, if, you, mm. if you're doing it in another field so that's sort of where I come in and, and sort of help them negotiate that um, also might help them 
deal with ethics and things like that because you know as you know if you're going to do research you need to have your ethics sorted and stuff like that yeah. so to ensure that they understand that um and i love it because i get to work on such a variety of of projects i've worked on robotics i've worked on um maternity death rates in sub-saharan africa i've worked on how medical teams communicate in the middle east um oh. you know all of this kind of thing so oh. so i've absolutely loved doing that fantastic and nothing fantastic. to do with my background uh, no mm-hmm. i've got a couple of questions for um around that but um, i just wanted to bring celine in again is there anything celine that that you've been thinking as we've been talking that you wanted to ask or i think um so obviously, at this point, you know, you were, um, once you'd left and you'd moved um, and you've, um, you know, yeah, pursuing more of your secular career and stuff, was there, um, was there a, did you have a sense of freedom to explore your sexuality as well? Or were you nervous? Because obviously everything you've been told by witnesses was there, or I guess there was probably a lot of feelings. How was that experience being like free to explore that did you or did you feel free to explore I guess um on the one hand yes I mean I I dropped the witness baggage instantly when it came to that as I moved away it was just like this is not this is not me Uh, I can I can do this but I'm um I probably turn myself a demisexual in that Mm -hmm. I need to have an emotional connection with someone in order to find them sexually attractive so it wasn't like I could just go out and have lots of sex and, and all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing, because that is just not me, witness or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person that I met in, in Sheffield was the person that I fell in love with. And we started a relationship and we're now married. So mm-hmm. I, on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, no, because I, I met one person and married them. <laughs> so <it's> yeah. like, <laughs> but, but we're both very, very happy. And um, mm-hmm. she comes from an ex-Muslim background. So uh, we, sh- we actually bonded on how patriarchal our upbringing was and how controlled our upbringing up- was because she grew up in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a lot of ways, she actually had more freedom than I did, which mm. was just so bizarre when we were talking about it. Wow. Mm. Yeah, but she, she was allowed to watch, you know, our certificate films and stuff. I, I could only Wild. dream of an 18 <laughs> certificate. I know. Yeah. Oh dear. So one of the questions I was wanting to ask you was the you've got lots of insights into this area um through your academic studies, through your personal life, and obviously through uh your the, the similarities you're describing with with your wife and her Muslim upbringing. Um uh, have you ever thought about doing any research in in that particular area? It feels to me like that's such an interesting area. Have you ever thought about doing any work in that in that field? I would love to. Um, I did actually start down that route uh, when I was okay. in Sheffield, uh, but uh, something happened. I can't remember what it was that happened, and I wasn't able to to go through with with going for funding. But funding would be the the barrier yeah. t- to do yeah. it. I mean, I would be happy to do it as a volunteer but then Mm. you've got issues around ethics if you don't have an institution behind you Mm -hmm. um it's just a bit more difficult um but it's it's certainly not it's certainly something i am considering um Mm. there's uh lots of research being done i mean that's the nice thing at the moment um there's currently Mm. some work being done by 
um, the Family Trust um, organization around coercion and yeah. high control groups. Um, and then Faith the Faithless are also looking at how they can support apostates um, and people who have left high control groups. So, so there is research being done and I, I would love to be part of it. Yeah. So what areas do you think need, um, need researching specifically? So, again, you know, get into the weeds because uh, we're well, really the, interested. The, in this area. For me, looking at my experiences, it would be it would be around gender and sexuality. Um, yeah. Anecdotally. Uh, going by the groups that I'm in, the, the, the X groups that I'm in, um, there seems to be an awful lot of LGBT um, people. And I wonder if that is because of the, the cognitive dissonance that comes from having to, you know, from being told that your sexuality is wrong mm. or, you know, if you're trans, that's just wrong um, mm. with, with your inner knowledge of what you are, your authentic self. Um, yeah. that that will wake more people up but there's also I think a massive issue around the roles of men and women uh, so you get a lot of women in the witnesses who stay in the witnesses and I think it's it's a much bigger problem than just um, gender it's it's a whole mm -hmm. social society thing you know if, if your support mm. group as a woman is this I think it's a lot harder to walk away um, and mm. you're also, as a man, you have these opportunities as an elder, as a ministerial servant, you have more information, um, that might help wake you up. So I think, I think there's a lot to be done on, on why, uh, you know, th there's this gender divide on, on people who are in the organization and people who leave the organization. Uh, that would be an interesting one as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I remember when I was growing up, there was a, there always did seem to be more women in the uh, organization than men. Um, and there is that, um, that scripture about the women being a large army um, mm -hmm. somewhere that is talked about. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I've, I've actually never asked myself why, why is that? If that is the case, why is that? Well, that's, that's something as well that I've always so dad left when, um, I was kind of well you started leaving around when I was born because you yeah. didn't want to um you didn't want to teach me something that you didn't believe um so you know that a few people that have um we've spoken to with their kids the power of kids to make you not you know you don't want to teach them something that you don't believe um, and I'm really grateful for that obviously and I think in one of our podcasts I said to dad was it um, when you found out that um, you're having a, a girl, I mean, you didn't find out until I was born, but mm. did that have an impact? Because, you know, I feel like it's just worse. <laughs> mm. um, it, you know, you, you, you just have less opportunity. You are told to be subservient and so on. And did that have an impact? Um, and, you know, you said it's really hard to untangle everything that was going on mm. in your brain at that point, um, regardless of when you were going to leave. But, for me yeah that's one thing i'm really really grateful for is um is yeah not not being um not being raised to be subservient just because of being a woman also yeah. uh like we spoke to um ali miller recently um mm. who's writing a book and she was yeah it, it was i was saying about you know um being around a family member's house and them having an elders meeting and you know that the the female person saying oh don't 
don't worry we'll see them we'll see the elders halfway through we'll bring them cake and tea and things like that and it's just yeah the these things that are just so normalized and when you do ask those questions like oh what did you think at the time when you're in it a lot of the time it's you don't even notice because it's so ingrained in how you've been raised so yeah raising awareness for that asking questions really important stuff yeah and I think that is one reason why so many women stay in because you know that it's so taken for granted that that's that's your role Mm. um I have to admit I kicked up a bit of a stink in my congregation about (laughs) not being able to do anything so our elders our elders introduced a a special thing that the sisters could do which was basically sit at the back of the hall near the sound desk and if anybody was upset or took a child out or anything like that they could go and offer assistance oh. and I, I at the time I was incredibly proud of that because it was just like oh look <laughs> sisters are doing something yeah oh, <laughs> yeah yeah we had a little yeah. badge and everything you did fantastic <laughs> but it, it's true isn't it I, I wonder do you think um when when you leave an organisation like this, that is, I, I describe it as high control. Um, yeah. I suppose more than cult. I just think it's it's so much more descriptive. Although yeah. I'm happy to call it a cult as well. Um, but when you leave a high control group like that, what are the after effects of that? Do you, do you ever um, did you ever find yourself kind of in still in that that way of thinking, or or were you already kind of way past that by the time you've left? Uh, I was, for the subservience bit, I was never in that way of thinking. No, never. No. I, I used to say, you know, in, in the new system, when I'm an elder, things will change. Um, <laughs> saying that, I know a lot of my thinking is still affected by the witnesses. I, some of the mm. things about high control groups where they are totalitarian, where they deal in black and white thinking, where they catastrophize, yep. where they generalize and all of those kind of negative thinking patterns. I have, I know I have them and I will continually battle them for the rest of my mm. life. But mm. I don't know how much it is that they are innate to me and being a Jehovah's Witness worsened it or yeah. whether they were created by being a witness. I don't think that's a question I can answer or need to answer. No. I just need to know, okay, I have a tendency to do this, so I need to be aware of coping skills. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's right. Um We've talked quite a lot on this uh, podcast about my own particular um, tendencies to worry about everything and so on. And yeah, I think um, when you're of a particular type of person, being a Jehovah's Witness can be absolutely terrifying, mortifying. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was, I was, a, I was afraid of everything and, and my own thinking. That was, I think, that's the worst bit, isn't it? When, when the indoctrination is is actually in your head so you don't actually need anybody else to be telling you what to do it's it's in there it's, yeah. it's... your own panopticon indeed yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. but I, I think also um the if you i i don't think any child should grow up expecting the world to end at any minute and everybody no. that they know to die like that going into school and, and knowing that at any minute your friends could all yeah. die is yeah. how can that give you healthy brain abilities? You know, it's like Absolutely. your thinking is going to be skewed. I think so. And, and that you have a personal responsibility as mm. a child to save them. I remember mm. falling out with an elder about that um, because I okay. called on a do not call mm. and they had been very annoyed at me. 
and I was mm. mortified. And um, you know, the elder had sort of brushed it off and gone, well, it's their fault, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, you don't understand. If I'm blood guilty mm. because I've upset them so much, they never listen, that yeah. is on me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he just sort of flustered his way out of the con con conversation, but it, it, that was my attitude towards it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And um, if you're of a, of a particular, um, you know, individual differences and so on, if you're of a particular uh, tendency traits, um, then then those messages you you hear, don't you? You, re mm. you receive them. So you're as a child, as a five year old, you're sat in the Kingdom Hall, and the brother is is telling you that um, you know we're on a life saving work. Um, you know, if you're able to put two and two together, that that has a lot of consequences. <laughs> that means you shouldn't really be playing. You should be studying so that you can bring people in. So I think mm -hmm. it can be tremendously damaging um, yes. to certain certain um, minds. I guess if you're of a mind that doesn't really think about that sort of stuff, then it's not going to harm you so much. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the other questions I, I wanted to ask, which I'm, I'm particularly interested in, as you know, is identity mm. and how. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the books I read about cults seem to be written assuming that people are dragged into cults mm. and they spend some years there. And then how do you get them out and how do you help them reimpose their authentic self back onto their or to overwrite this pseudo self that's kind of been put on onto them. Um, obviously, I don't recognise that from a personal perspective. I've got some problems with it um, theoretically as well in terms of psychological theory. Um, but obviously, if you're brought up as a witness, then you don't. If you're taking that model, you don't really have an authentic self to go back to. Um, how, what's your observations about that, um, that whole idea of identity self and how you build or rebuild an identity after you leave? Have you got any insights on that? Uh, well, my view, um, and I appreciate other people will have different views mm. is that if you've grown up in this way, your, your identity is stunted uh, in that your development is stunted because you don't mm. develop the sort of adult critical thinking skills that you need to negotiate the world. Um, mm. So I think it can have a profound effect on identity. And when you leave, it can be like it's all just rushing in um, and yeah. you might end up. I, I remember one of the, the points about the therapy, something had happened and I was talking to, to the chap about it and he he pointed out to me that my internal reaction, which was basically a toddler stamping their foot and screaming, it's not fair, mm. was the reaction of me because I hadn't been allowed to grow up from being that toddler in those sorts mm. of situations. Um, mm. So I think it can have a profound effect. I, my PhD and, and my academic work was around postmodernism. So I'm quite happy with the idea of not having a unitary self. Yes. That we all we all have such different aspects of us. That's why that's why you know horoscopes work because you can say, yes, I'm an introvert, but I can be the life and soul of the party because mm. we have these different elements. And I think mm. when you're in a cult, whether you if you're born in, it, it might be a, a different process. But essentially, there are parts of you that will be pulled out more, 
for example, the negative thinking. And there yeah. are parts of you that will be suppressed, but they're still mm. there. Um, mm. And it's how you access them then when you leave. Um, I do like the idea of the, the shadow in Jung, that you've got this, you know, these elements of you that you've put in a shadow, that, that they're behind you, they're dragging you down, but they're still there and you mm. have to engage with them. Um, theoretically, it might not stand up, but I think as an image, it works quite mm. well in, in yeah. how you develop as you leave by reintegrating those parts of you. But I think it's different for everyone because, you know, the point we were just saying about how some people might be very, this is the right thing to do and I need to do it. And other people are like, oh, if I just go out on a Saturday and, and do an hour, I'm fine and I've ticked the box yes. and Jehovah will be happy. You yeah. know, you're going to have such a different experience leaving because I think that the person who can do that is far more rounded and ready to deal with the world. The person who has had the experience of, oh my goodness, it needs to be done this way mm -hmm. or it's wrong and Jehovah's going to kill me, yeah. is going to have far more of a battle to kind of accept the parts of them that they've they've suppressed. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think there's a risk um, when you leave that that you can you're then looking for something else to latch onto to mm. give you that certainty about um, okay, well, what are the rules here then? Yeah, because you know, I, I knew I know the that's rules before. Mm. <laughs> okay, do you want to talk a bit about that? Uh, well, again, I, I know that again, I, as I can't say. It was given to me by the witnesses, or it's innate to me. Mm. But I don't like uncertainty. Yeah, uh, I, it's not something I'm comfortable with. It's something I am becoming comfortable with because you have mm. to be. But yeah. I find it difficult, and I like straight lines, and I like black and white. And I know yeah. that one of the reasons I stayed a witness for as long as I did was because it, it meant I didn't have to worry about uncertainty. It, that was all mm. taken care of. Um, and so again, it's just learning coping strategies. I think, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think, yeah, that's that's absolutely it. Um, and I think when I when I left, I mean, I often say that I went through like an adolescence at about thirty. I, mm. I became an, a stupid adolescent, and part of that was just going out to nightclubs and um, you know behaving like a like a teenager. Um, but uh, it was also about trying to find um or to make sense i mean this is part of, part of what this podcast is about is making sense of the world and trying to understand what what do i think about this what do i think about that and yeah. um you know and i suppose I, I threw myself into career as well and then you've got this other institution or this other um structure now that you can start to look to to give you those certainties that you had before um, and yeah, I, I think my journey is, has been one of, of ever increasing comfort with not knowing and saying, do you know what, there's, there's still a lot to learn about this. Going back to what you said about, you know, you got to 30 and, and had your adolescence. I did something similar. <laughs> I just decided I was a goth and, and that was it. And, um, uh, I started dressing goth. I was still going to the hall at that point, uh, right. dressing goth. Um, we used to wear a shirt and tie. And, and stuff like that but I think I was lucky when, when we when we think about identity going back to your point mm. about identity mm. because my fade was so gradual mm. I was able to develop a lot of my interests before I actually stepped out of the door 
because I was so isolated and I didn't have association outside of the hall, I was left to my own devices. So my own devices involved going to gigs and theatres and this kind of thing that I just did on my own. Um, mm. So I had that as I as I walked out of the door. I already had this identity that was an academic who liked X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's quite interesting. I mean, um, I, I don't know whether you've got any advice or um, whether that's that's something that you would say to others about giving time or or whether that's just not possible to give advice to other people because there's so, there's so many different personality types and, and uh, situations. But is, is there any bits of advice that you would give people as they exit a, a, a re- religion or a belief system like Jehovah's Witnesses? My advice would be to accept that you are on a journey. The person you are as you walk out of the door is not the person that you're going to be 18 months, three, four, five years down the line, because we change all the time. Mm. So don't get stuck on how you are now, because that's not who you're going to be. Um, And also be open to things. Um, I, I think it's really hard to look at apostate material. Mm. when you when you leave <clears throat> unless you you know unless that's what's actually got you out the door but if you're someone who says oh i can't do this anymore or you have a situation where you're disfellowshipped or whatever but you're still a believer that that looking at apostate material is is such a massive step and i don't like that people kind of get it forced on them you need to look at this you need to look at this you need to... Okay. people need to be at the right point mentally to be able mm. to accept what they mm. go because it's going to destroy your faith uh, you're going to realize that it was a house of cards and that is a yeah. massive massive thing so um i think accept that you're on a journey and that your journey is not going to be like anybody else's journey but you can still gain things by talking to other people right that's really really good advice um so we we met at a kind of um get together an online um meet up with faith to faithless didn't we mm. um going back a few months now um so is that something that you think is useful to to get involved in things like that? And um, yeah. how, how does that help, do you think? Um, faith, uh, faith to Faithless, uh, I volunteer for Faith to Faithless. Like, you know, I do okay. some work for them. And um, I like the fact that when you're talking to people from different high control religions, you realize that a lot of your experiences are the same. It might be mm. different jargon uh, and, and nuances, but a lot of the, yeah. as I said before, the, you know, the, the techniques of control and all of that are the same. Mm. Um, so it can be really interesting to share your experiences. Um, this is one thing that I've been able to do with my wife. Um, you know, come from radically different backgrounds on the surface, but suddenly realize how many things we have in common. Um, and then there are other groups, uh, like the Family Survival Trust, who deal with not just religions, but any high control group. So there are people okay. who come out of therapeutic cults, who come yeah. out of political cults, martial arts cults and all sorts of things and again you realize that you actually have a lot in common one of the most important things i think that these kind of groups offer is a chance to tell your story which is one of the most powerful things you can do because in Mm. doing that you will start to reassess what's happened you'll think about what's happened you'll think about how it fits with other people's experiences and you can start to get um a hook on it that that might help you then continue to move forward but you know the narrative is so so important yeah going back to the discussion about identity one of the 
the theories that, that I'm particularly taken by is is how we actually tell stories about mm. ourselves, and that's actually how we create this thing we we think of as ourself. Yeah. Um, and when we leave, um, even if you get um, you know, pushed out of something, you know, um, there's some research into being made redundant in jobs like a marine or sports people, you know, losing that big part of your identity. If you can somehow carry on with your story, so rather than this is the end, you know, this is everything stops now, I've got to build from scratch. If you're able to weave a story together, a narrative together, um, then that can help you move on. And it sounds like the opportunity to do that through groups like Faith to Faithless and so on um, yeah. gives you an opportunity to to actually do that out loud. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, something called aphantasia, which okay. basically means I cannot make pictures in my head. Oh, um, okay. So, you know, when I read a book, there's, there are no pic- I can't picture the characters or anything like that. Um, yeah. And so I think for me, narrative is the most important thing because I have nothing yeah. else uh, in my head. Yeah. It's just narrative. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think that th- that's absolutely right to have a continuing story and not an mm. end and a, and, a, and a beginning. As transition, as you said before. Yeah, that, mm. that is a really nice way of looking at it. Celine, have you got anything else? We're, we're coming up to 56 minutes now. So we're, um, we've taken nearly an hour of uh, the doctor's time um is there anything else i have like i have my little questions down the side my little cheat Mm. sheet but we've kind of gone through them all quite naturally to be honest um one thing i was that the thing i was going to say actually was um that we'll put the put some links on the show notes to Mm -hmm. things like faith to faithless and so on if there's anything Mm. else um doctor that you'd like us to put on there then um then yeah let us know because we we I guess we don't see ourselves, well, I don't see myself as an activist in any way. Um, so directing people to people who can actually help is, is I think, quite important. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, we're certainly not qualified to give people advice, but giving yeah. giving them access to that, mm-hmm. I think, is... Signposting. Is um, but, yeah, yeah there's absolutely. a few groups, and there are some specific ex-Jehovah's Witness groups as well that, that do, um, you know, Zoom socials and things like that that uh, people yeah. might find helpful. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely useful. I think you've um, what watching with Dad finding more people to like talk to that understand it. It's just there's a um, lots of people are interested, aren't they, about um, Jehovah's Witnesses, regardless of if they had much to do with it. Just because I think they're kind of a little bit unknown. They're just those people that knock on your door. So people are often interested to have conversations and be like, oh, I didn't know that, or like that's weird or whatever. But um, it's always nice to not to skip that bit and have people know already isn't it and just I, to get into the conversation yeah. but i mean when you grow up a witness you think everybody knows everything about the witnesses because that's what you're told which is the worldwide <laughs> preaching work it means everybody sure. in the world knows about the witnesses <laughs> yeah. and one of the interesting things with you know talking to my wife she she grew up as i said in the middle east mm. and she was unusual in that she helped teach english to uh, sorry she helped teach arabic to people who'd moved there for work so she actually met quite a few missionaries mm. who were there secretly um, to proselytize. So she oh, knew right. about Christianity. She, she she had a pretty good understanding of Christianity for someone who, who'd grown up in the Middle mm. East. But she'd never met a Jehovah's Witness because it's not something mm. Jehovah's Witnesses do. These were all mm. evangelicals from America 
who had decided to come to the Middle East and, and preach. And some of them were found and deported. Um, but either way, and it just goes to show, we, we're told mm. everybody in the world will know about the, you know, the mm. message that we're bringing. That's right. But everybody she knew had no idea Jehovah's Witnesses existed, but they knew yeah. about other versions of Christianity. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Uh, well, you're taught to believe that, you know, the center of the world revolves around this this great question that is about God's name. And, um, and it's Jehovah's Witnesses that are at the center of this. Mm. Um, you know, Babylon the Great will be destroyed and the only people left will be Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's when the governments will turn on Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and it, absolutely, a third of the earth doesn't even know they exist. No, um, well, like my friends all at, at the, you know, at school, they all just, they they just thought, oh, it's just those people that wear like yeah. that, that particular suit and or dresses and come to your door when you you know when you're in your pjs on the weekend just having a late yeah you know and come, come get we'll you stand out of bed. outside the railway station now with the oh yes yeah. with, with, the know, with the carts mm, <laughs> yeah yeah okay right well um if you've got no more questions Celine, um i think i'll um i'll ask uh, Dr. Kalunthu, Kalunthi, sorry, I'm, I'm terrible at my Welsh. Um, <laughs> if you've got anything else that you wanted to say uh, for our interview today, is there anything that we've missed that you think would be interesting? No, it's been a, a very interesting chat for, uh, for the last hour. I, I really enjoyed it and thank you very much for having me on. Oh, well, thank you. We really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you very much. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. 